Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Mr. Eastern Slope. In our episode the other day on the Marquis of Haihun and how one minister, Huo Guang, controlled the politics of the Han Dynasty for a time, we mentioned commentary on that bit of history by one Su Shi from the Song Dynasty. Su Shi is, in fact, one of those indispensable figures of Chinese history and literature. One of those people you must know about. One of those names even young schoolchildren know in the Chinese world. Indeed, even young children also know the other name by which he is commonly known. His pen name, his nom de plume, Dongpo or Eastern Slope. So let's talk about him today, Mr. Eastern Slope. Who was he and why was he important? Su Shi was born in 1037 AD and died in 1101. In other words, he lived his entire life within the span of the Northern Song Dynasty. Just to remind you, the Song Dynasty was established in 960 AD and set up its capital in the city of Kaifeng in the northern half of China. After the Jingkang disaster of 1125-27, the Song Dynasty was forced to move its capital southward. So, historians distinguish between the first and second halves of the Song Dynasty by the relative locations of its capitals into the Northern Song and the Southern Song. And Su Shi was born into quite a family. His father, Su Xun, was one of the great literati of his time. His younger brother, Su Chu also became one of the leading lights of their generation. Famously, in 1057, the Su brothers took the imperial level of the civil service examination together. And together, they earned the rank of Jing Shi, the highest degree possible. Given that only a handful of students across China earned the Jing Shi degree at each imperial examination, which didn't even happen every year. It was headline news at the time that two brothers from one family managed the feat together. The Su family became legendary. Years later, in 1089, Su Che, the younger brother, would be sent on an embassy to the Liao Empire in the north of the Song, an empire ruled by the Qidan or Kitan people, whom the Han Chinese considered barbarians. And the Liao Empire posed a great military threat against the Song. Indeed, it was its chief foreign policy challenge. So Su Che was being sent on a very important diplomatic mission. When Su Shi bade his brother farewell, 
he wrote him a poem, which famously ended with these lines: "Chan Yu Ruo Wen Jun Jia Shi, Mo Dao Zhong Chao Di Yi Ren." Which means, if the Khan should ask you about your family, do not tell him that we are number one in China. In other words, make the Khan think that China is full of people just as talented as you and I, so that he won't dare attack us. Later, literary critics came to talk about the eight great scholars of the Tang and Song dynasties. The Tang and Song dynasties combined—that's a span of about six hundred years. The eight leading figures of a six hundred-year period. Of the eight, three are the Su father and sons: Su Xun, Su Shi, and Su Chu. But I see I have gotten quite ahead of myself. Let's back up and talk more about the life and times of Su Shi. So Su Shi and his brother Su Chu earned the Jing Shi rank together in 1057. The civil service exam was, of course, meant to qualify men for service as mandarins, so they should have launched their careers right then. But their mother died. Almost immediately afterward, per ancient Chinese custom, they had to go home for the funeral, and then stay home for a couple of years. So that delayed the beginnings of their careers. After Su Shi served the customary mourning period, he entered government service, becoming a provincial judge. But then he didn't get along with the provincial governor. And returned to the capital for a post there. Then his father Su Xing died, so again Su Shi had to go and serve another period of mourning. When Su Shi returned to politics for a second time, in 1069, he found the Song court in turmoil. A year earlier, in 1068. A new emperor, Emperor Shenzong, had ascended the throne. One of the other eight great scholars of the Tang and Song dynasties, a man named Wang Anshi, was then the leading figure at court. And Emperor Shenzong asked Wang Anshi for his solutions for dealing with the looming fiscal crisis that faced the Song Empire. See, in the century or so since its founding, the Song Dynasty's bureaucracy had gradually grown to double its original size, and the government's expenditures had so ballooned that the empire had moved from a budget surplus to emphatically one of deficit. Empowered by Emperor Shenzong, Wang Anshi launched a sweeping. Series of reforms, touching all aspects of government. As is often the case with political reforms, Wang Anshi's program caused a great deal of controversy. The Song Court split into two parties: the reformers on the one hand, 
and on the other, the conservatives, who criticized the program or felt that it was too ambitious or too zealous. When Su Shi returned to court in 1069, he seemed to side with the conservatives and attacked some aspects of the reform program. As a result, he made an enemy of Wang Anshi, who repeatedly spoke poorly of Su Shi in front of Emperor Shenzong. The reformers even groundlessly accused Su Shi of corruption, while the conservatives spoke up in his defense. Regardless, now that Wang Anshi was out to get him, Su Shi's once promising political career was now much less promising. Moreover, Su Shi wasn't even really a conservative. He criticized the reform program where he felt it deserved criticism. In 1085, Emperor Shenzong died, and Emperor Zhezong ascended the throne. The new emperor had no love for the reform program. He put another statesman, Sima Guang, in charge. Between 1086 and 1093, Sima Guang systematically reversed all of the reforms. So now, Su Shi took to criticizing Sima Guang and his conservatives. Surely, not every piece of the reform program was wrong. So now Su Shi ran afoul of the conservatives as well, even as the reformers still hated him for his earlier opposition. Caught between the two sides, Su Shi basically spent his entire government career in a state of disappointment. Mostly this meant occupying middling positions in the provinces rather than having genuine influence at court. And often, just as soon as he was promoted, he was demoted again. In 1079, he was even imprisoned on trumped-up charges for several months, and very nearly died. In 1092, though, he did briefly rise to the position of Minister of Defense, But then, like I said, he was demoted again. And then in 1101, he fell ill and died. At this point, you may quite reasonably ask why it is that this perpetually disappointed mid-level bureaucrat is so important. Why are we still talking about him a thousand years later? Well, Su Shi considered his job, his career, to be that of a government official, which was how all traditional Chinese scholar mandarins thought of themselves. But his true achievements in life were those of a writer and an artist, and in some sense, simply as a human being. He was a great Calligrapher, one of the best who has ever lived. Calligraphy, with a writing brush, was a deeply esteemed art in ancient China, 
practiced by the literati. In Taiwanese schools, even when I was growing up, we still had to make a college try at mastering traditional calligraphy. Although I, for one, totally sucked at it. Su Shi was a great painter, and a number of his paintings survive today as treasures in major museums. As a writer, he excelled as both an essayist and a poet of multiple poetic forms. Some of his most famous essays are even today must-read pieces for students in the Chinese-speaking world. As for his poetry, well, here I must pause to explain a little about the evolution of Chinese poetry. Chinese poetry reached a high point during the Tang Dynasty, that's 618 to 906 or 907 AD. The Tang poetic forms generally had regular measures. What this means is, recalling that each Chinese character has only one syllable, each line of a Tang poem usually had the same number of characters and therefore syllables. The most common forms were poems of either four or eight lines, the lines being either all five characters long or all seven characters long. These poetic forms were still common and popular by the Song Dynasty. Su Shi himself wrote lots of such poems. Some 2,700 of them survive. The poem I mentioned earlier, in which he told his brother not to be honest to the Khan, was a Tang-style poem. But essentially, by the Song Dynasty, these poetic forms had largely played out, as it were. The Tang poets had already written the best poetry possible in these forms. So the great contribution of the Song poets was a new kind of poetry with irregular lines. The Song poets were arguably able to equal the achievements of their Tang predecessors through this innovation. Frankly, as a kid, I often preferred the irregular Song poems over the regular Tang poems. The former just seemed so much more free. And Su Shi was one of the great exponents of this new form. To demonstrate the sound of such an irregular poem, even though I know that most of my listeners don't understand the language, I am going to read you one of Su Shi's poems now. This one, like many of his other poems, illustrated his career disappointment. He wrote in 1075, while serving as a provincial governor, wishing to be recalled to the capital. But it is also about how one day he went for a hunt. So the poem opens with the excitement of the action of the hunt. Here goes. Lao Fu Liao Fa Shao Nian Kuang, Zuo Qian Huang, Yu Qing Cang, Jing Mao Diao Qiu, Tian Qi Juan Ping Gang, Wei Bao Qing Cheng Sui Tai Shou, 
，青射虎，看孙郎。酒酣胸胆尚开张，鬓为霜，又何妨？持节云中何日遣冯唐？会挽雕弓如满月，西北望，射天狼。Finally, I said that Sushi, Mister Eastern Slope. Kind of excelled simply as a human being. By that I mean there was a kind of infectious joy that he took in the art of living, that rubs off on us even a thousand years later through his writings and tales of his life. Perhaps it's hard to call that an achievement exactly, but there is wisdom in it as well, as much as. Sushi himself cared a great deal about his disappointing career as a Mandarin. His life, as lived, was in a way a lesson in not caring too much about that sort of thing. Maybe we should just enjoy life and its fine gifts. Yes, those gifts can be poetry and art, but it can also be food. Sushi was a great Epicurean, a famous food lover, who took great pleasure in cooking. In fact, a number of dishes in Chinese cuisine are named after him, and allegedly invented by him. Next time you eat at a Chinese restaurant, particularly if it serves cuisine from the Yangtze Delta area, so Shanghai or nearby. See if you can find a dish that, in Chinese, is called "meat of the eastern slope." It's a very rich braised pork. So, granted, not for everyone. Not if you're a vegetarian, obviously. Probably not if you're trying to lose some weight. But well, there it is—a dish named after a poet from. A thousand years ago, and that is what I call Chinese culture. This has been M O D G. Thank you for listening.